Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode number 37 of Forever Strength. I'm Andrew Coates. I've got Bailey Lau with me, and we have Eve Guzman here with us today. So I just want to make sure I get this one right. So I've got a couple of notes here. So you, a lot of your prominence comes from your background as a macro coach, but you're also an educator in that space. You're a business coach. You're a public speaker. Um, you're People Magazine's half their size ambassador, and you yourself have lost 150 pounds in your transformation, and you're the CEO of the G Transformation Academy. So it's great to have you. And I guess an important note, we connected because we are both speaking at uh, our friend Aram's event, the Real Coaches Summit, at March 6th and 7th in Las Vegas. So I'm actually looking forward to that event. So it's nice to have you on. Yes, absolutely. I'm glad to be here. Well, Bailey always has great stuff to ask, so I'm going to defer to her, and I'll sneak in here and there. Yeah, so just to get some more information on your background, um, how did you get into health and fitness? Ooh, long journey. So I got into health and fitness mostly because I spent my entire life or half my life being obese and overweight. Um, I think by the time I was 16 in high school, I was already 200 pounds. By the time I was 21, I weighed almost 300 pounds and I'm five feet and one and a half um, inches. Um, so most of my life, I was overweight, um, trying to mimic some of the diets I would see my mom do. I grew up watching my mom doing Weight Watchers programs. I would go with her every week. And I thought to myself, like, this is what women do when they need to lose weight. So watching her diet and go to those meetings and sit in the back seats. I was absorbing how to diet. And then I found myself later in life trying to apply those things to my own journey before trying to really dive in and try to lose weight. Uh, once I got really dedicated and committed and probably failed 11 diets two to three times a piece, um, mm -hmm. I was able to lose about 120 pounds in 16 months. And then I got pregnant with my second kid, <laughs> gained more weight, um, lost it again. Um, during that time, I was a um, scientist doing pharmaceutical research in the areas of clinical pathology, toxicology, and microbiology. And after I had my son, I started to make the transition slowly from doing calorie tracking to macro tracking and then used Instagram as my account to kind of hold me accountable to losing that last bit of weight. And then once I lost that last bit of weight, People Magazine found me. Um, I was trying to get to that half their size mark of losing at least 135 pounds, which eventually um, totaled me losing 150. And the rest was kind of history from people reaching out to me saying, oh my God, you lost so much weight. Help me. How can I do this? Can you help me do this? Do you have a program? And then it literally just took off from there. That's probably the shortest story I can give you in that time span of that stuff happening over 10 years time. Yeah. Um, and here I am almost 10 years later. There you go. Yeah, so you're not even, <clears throat> not just qualified with your education. You were literally a scientist and you went through the process on your own. That's awesome. Yeah, you're always your best client first, always. Yeah, exactly. Um, so just to get a little bit more information on nutrition, what do you think, what is the main role that it plays in your health? Oh my gosh, it's everything. 
Um, <laughs> absolutely everything. I mean, I've spent so much time watching people trying to um, out-exercise a bad diet. I've seen so many people try to um, do things like whole day fasting, do things like omitting full food groups, slashing their calories in half. And I think people really fail to realize that under eating usually ends up being the larger of their problems than um, trying to use that as a mechanism to lose weight. So a lot of people, what they initially do when they go on a diet is they slash all their calories down and then they wonder why the diet stops. They're hitting metabolic adaptations that they don't really um um, foresee encountering. And so what do they do? They slash more till they can't eat that low of calories and then they're hungry, then they binge and it literally becomes that cycle constantly. And a lot of people don't know standard or foundational nutrition and really filling in the gap with eating at maintenance, starting to get some of those um, major macro groups in that are going to be helping contribute to the rate of their metabolism, contributing to them having a healthy thyroid, and then making sure that they don't have deficiencies in those uh, micronutrients as well. Yeah. So <clears throat> it plays um, a huge role in performance and functionality. Could you speak a little bit more on those ones? Yeah. So when it comes to performance, again, a lot of people I see try to undereat, overexercise to achieve their goals. And a lot of times when they're doing that, they're not hitting what they're needing for their daily intake for protein, carbs, and fats. And then they start see, seeing things like not being able to build muscle, not being able to recover, not being able to get adequate sleep at night so they can have that repair of their muscles for the next day. Um, and then when it comes to functions, things like thyroid health, adrenal health, sex hormones, a lot of people may be so driven on lowering calories intake for them to get the aesthetic result, but they don't really realize what they're breaking down internally when they're trying to make sure everything's balanced. Yeah. There's a lot of information in there and I'm sure we'll get into more detail as we go along. But, um, so you talk about, um, metabolism a lot on your Instagram, especially. Um, so what do a lot of people just not know? Could you explain it a little bit more and why it's important? Yeah. So, the way that I look at metabolism and the way that I like to explain it to people is the metabolism is always going to want what it wants, regardless of our goals, whether those are going to be um, aesthetic. Our metabolism is always meant to try to reach a place of homeostasis. And the more that we push on it, the more that we try to get it to do the things that we want it to do for like body composition, fat loss, weight goals, and all of that. A lot of people don't understand that its primary goal is to try to protect us, make sure that we're in a thriving environment. And a lot of people don't understand the concept of calorie matching when their metabolism is trying to preserve how many calories calories it's burning so that it can actually so that it can actually save some of that calorie intake for some of the internal processes that are going on in the body. And they kind of end up in this tug of war, trying to eat more, do more, not really knowing that your metabolism and then your hormone optimization is important for you to be reaching some of those goals that you want. Yeah. And so where would you start someone off when a new client comes in on educating them about their metabolism and why it's important to pay attention to it? Definitely put them, putting them at maintenance calories. 
um, giving them maintenance calories, having them track at maintenance macros to one, truly see what their maintenance intake is. Are they maintaining their weight? Also for me to kind of learn what some of their food habits are. Um, are there things that they've told me like on the intake form of what they like to eat, uh, what they typically eat on a regular basis? I like to actually kind of see that in play because I don't want to ultimately change every single thing that someone's eating, but I really want to see what they're doing, what their food habits are, what their intake is like, what are their meals consisting of, and then really working from that um, that um, as like a springboard of the things that we're going to start working on and optimizing. I like to make sure um, whether people are working with me or someone on my team to make sure that their calorie intake when they come in is actually in a place where they're safe to go into a deficit if fat loss is their goal. That's awesome. Um, <clears throat> so how would you say that the eating right helps your mood and your daily function? Mm. <laughs> so I think a lot of people kind of heard that terminology of like, we are what we eat. Um, it's definitely true. When people tend to eat um, meals that are a little bit more nutrient deficient, more processed, higher sugars, um, things that are kind of full of junk, people typically on those days feel more junk-like. Um, they feel more sluggish. They're a little bit slower to recover. Sleep isn't as good. Um, they have like deep dives or deep plummets like in their blood glucose levels, kind of wanting like that craving for like the next fix. And they kind of find themselves on this cycle of chasing their tail, um, going after those high, hyper palatable foods, um, which are, you know, dopamine hits for us. And they're things that we really like to eat, but we're actually filling our body with things that make us feel like crap. Um, a lot of people feel better when they do eat foods that are more nutrient dense, more fruits, more vegetables, complex carbs, um, protein, good fat oil sources. Um, when people are typically eating those types of foods, they actually perform better, they look better. And a lot of the times, some of the imbalances that they have with hormones get repaired. Yeah. So how would you find a balance between eating foods that you like um, and eating foods that actually make you feel good and function properly. I like to do like an 80-20 approach, which a lot of people are pretty familiar with, where about 80% of your meals or your macros or your calorie intake, whether it's per day or per week, are coming from cleaner whole foods and then 20% still having the fun stuff. Um, I'm somebody that's lost a lot of weight but I like to eat stuff that tastes good too. You know, my definition of kind of like processed foods and eating out are different than what it used to be. Um, you know, 15 years ago when I was eating double cheeseburgers from McDonald's every single day for like three years straight, um, those things taste good to me then. But as I started to eat foods that were cleaner, more whole foods, nutrient dense choices, I started to crave those things a little bit more. But I don't believe in taking all of the what you would call bad foods or unclean foods or processed processed foods out to make it sustainable for life. Yeah. So do you think then um, when people start eating better, they stop craving as much the stuff that's they just not as good for them? 
Yeah, typically, um, typically if they really make it a consistent habit, like typically you start to see the payoff of, oh, I'm feeling better. I'm looking better. My body composition is changing. So it's not just about the fact of like how I feel and I'm get, I'm not having some of these hyper palatable foods. Some of it is the visual payoff because we are, you know, we're, we're human. Like we want to get results from the things that we do. And if people can stick with it long enough, they start to feel better, look better, which keeps them going um, after the goal. And they continue to kind of switch out some of the bad habits. Yeah. And that would go even with um, something like I I don't um, do well with lactose products. And I know a lot of people really hate oat milk and they really hate almond milk. And I think it tastes the same. And same with things, uh, a protein bar compared to a regular candy bar I don't know it because I eat it so often and I haven't replaced it completely or anything like that but uh, some people think oh it tastes gross Pro mm -hmm. I can get protein in it and whereas someone that eats it all the time um because they want to they don't really have that Ugh, that's disgusting I'm not eating that yeah your palate definitely shifts over time yeah there's yeah. one thing that I like to draw people's attention to and it's when you can start to think about what are your true non-negotiable things that you love, things mm -hmm. that you treasure that actually, when you can enjoy them guilt-free, which is an important goal, then they actually are soothing. There's something that you can appreciate, right? As long as there's no guilt involved. And it's identifying all the other convenient, usually hyper, you know, I'd say highly processed or fast food that we will eat out of necessity, out of hunger, we're rushing around or just not taking the time to prepare and cook things at home. And how much that stuff is unfulfilling. How often have you gone and eaten something? I always use the example of a mall food court, like the Chinese. Mm -hmm. food and, you, and you look and you think, all right, this stuff's going to be good because you think about that really expensive, good quality Chinese food that you order once or twice a year as a good treat because that stuff's amazing. And the mall food court stuff is terrible. And then you start thinking about, well, I can't believe I wasted calories on that. I can't believe I wasted money on that. And if you constantly are realizing this about a lot of the food you're eating, that's the stuff that you try to take out of the equation, not feeling like you're going to be restricted of the things that truly matter, like a good glass for me. I know most women, my ex-girlfriend thinks it smells like, tastes like kerosene, but a good glass of Highland single malt scotch or apple pie, right? I like those things. Whereas I feel better if I've cooked, I've been using this example because I've been cooking it recently, but bake salmon with some seasoning salt on it and, you know, chop up some Brussels sprouts, bake them in the oven with a little bit of olive oil and some rice, a little bit of soya sauce on it. And I actually like that meal a lot. And that to me is a lot better and certainly more nutritious than anything I can get on the run. And when I fill up most of my week full of that type of food, then I actually, every once in a while, I'll go grab a DQ blizzard, which I actually enjoy as a treat. Now, you can't do that every day. And then you start getting, feeling guilty about doing the things you truly love because your entire week is full of stuff that you know isn't great for you and you're not fulfilled by it. So I don't know, you can you know, take that even further in how you communicate that to your people. But I, I try to personally bring that to people's attention. Yeah, I definitely agree. When I am in like the habit of eating those foods constantly, I feel that way sometimes when I have the other things that are a treat. 
Um, like you mentioned the dairy, the, the DQ blizzard, I used to eat, eat two to three of those a week growing up as a child, a week until I really started logging foods, reading labels and seeing what's in them and realized that was probably 80% of my calories being someone as, as petite as I am in a day. And I would eat that constantly. Um, and so now that I know the value of what that has, that also kinds of, it takes away from it for me too. There's something else here that's worth mentioning because aside from me, almost everybody else who's listening in and women, on average, women are smaller. On average, women have lower metabolic rates than men. And yet every serving size that's out there is one size fits all except for the kids menu. So just thoughts on navigating that for women and I, I suppose I'll embed a piece to this because it's out there. We feel entitled that we should be able to have all of the things that are presented in front of us. And mm -hmm. realistically, we're not because this is all now engineered for us to consume more in a, a definitely beyond what our metabolic needs are. Oh, that's good. Speaking on that the changes in our foods that we're consuming now, depending on who's listening right now and what their age is. When our parents were middle-aged, the amount of calories that are in foods then versus now has almost increased by 50%. And so a lot of those processed foods that a lot of us love, they are sometimes that one meal is the basal metabolic rate or maintenance calories for one woman in a day, like easily. Um, my maintenance calories without pushing maintenance are about 1900 calories. That's typically one dinner meal on most menus. Um, and I can push my metabolic rate to maintain at around 2300. Um, not every woman is in the place or has had the resources and has had the, the coaching and education to be able to do that. But I think that a lot of people, when they hear diets, like if it fits your macros and I can fit everything in that they can have everything. And to really be honest, you can't fit all those calories in, in a single day. And I think when people don't realize that they can get the kid's size because the calories from like 1950 to now have changed so drastically in these foods, treats, processed restaurant foods and things like that, they don't get the snack size or they don't think, I'm just going to eat half of it and give the ha other half to my partner or my friend. Sometimes I'll get a cookie and I'll split it with my son because sometimes they're 500 calories. But I think a lot of people think that they have to eat the whole thing or they think to be able to enjoy it, they have to have the whole thing or eat it every single day and don't realize that true balance and true food freedom is being able to have some of those things some of the time or maybe a partial portion, but not every single day. And I think a lot of people then step up to say, well, that's restrictive. But then that also is putting us back into that cycle of overconsumption of calories is the number one reason why we have obesity. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, when people, you're saying when people are going out there, ignoring their hunger cues and their satiating cues uh, because there's a, a huge meal in front of them that's not actually one portion um, that they're eating the whole thing are there desire cues i want to have it all <laughs> yeah yeah ignore one for the other this tastes good i'm just gonna keep eating it 
Um, so getting back to the daily function um, and eating food that makes you feel good, um, can you speak a little bit more on digestive health and maybe the science behind why you should eat foods that are good for you? Ooh, digestive health. A lot of people don't want to talk about this. <laughs> they don't want to talk about the number twos. They don't want to talk about gut health at all. Um, so for functional health, when it comes to digestive health, things that I recommend on a daily basis to help with normal digestive health are going to be water intake, fiber goal, and then getting a probiotic um, that has a decent number of cultures, uh, multiple cultures, and making sure that you're in, including high variety foods that are fruits, vegetables, complex carbs every single day. So I like to get a lot of our clients started on a probiotic if they're not getting a lot of their gaps filled in through cultured foods like yogurt, um, other types of um, cultured fr foods, fruits, vegetables. A probiotic is something that I definitely recommend for ultimate gut health. For women, getting 25 grams of fiber per day, a little bit more for some people. Um, men, getting 30 grams of fiber in each day, a little bit more, just, just depending on what their baseline is like. Um, I think a lot of people don't value their gut health until they have gut issues. A lot of people don't realize that going number two every day is normal and not going number two every single day is not normal. And a lot of people don't talk about that out loud. Yeah, that was one of the, the drivers for me is just feeling good about and making sure that my digestive system was helping. Hence why I figured out that I'm sensitive to lactose, which is easy to avoid, but not easy to avoid. Um, but I think that's a really important thing for some clients to remember is that you're not just looking for the physical outcome of eating well, you want to feel well, you want your body to function well, um, at the, the base level, the cellular level, and then all the way up um, to help you in and outside of the gym. What's the role of higher, and again, I don't want to demonize sugar, because we've said, you know, the 80-20 part, but when we have the people who are eating diets that are predominantly highly processed, that have higher ratios of sugar and and other things that might be, are these high ratios, do these cause issues with gut health and do they have a direct influence on the type of um, you know, bacteria that's in our gut? Do you mean with fiber intake or probiotic intake? Well, obviously those are a piece of the puzzle, but if you have... An, a large amount of highly processed food, high sugar food yes. in the diet, does that play a role in the type of, uh, you know, bacteria that are in our gut? Yeah, absolutely. So typically with people that are eating foods that are more processed, they will see smaller variants of the good bacteria we need. So when they're eating foods that aren't containing like prebiotic cultures, which is the food that our gut biome needs to be able to sustain the good cultures that we grow in our gut, a lot of the people that are eating processed foods are not getting that variation that we need to create a growth of the multiple strains that we need. And so when we look at their biome, instead of seeing multiple strains, we're seeing just a couple which can contribute to overgrowth of bad bacteria, fungi, gut dysbiosis, leading to things like um, SIBO, constipation, um, 
uh, diarrhea, bloating, I'm trying to think of all the other nasty things out there, but adding that variety through taking a probiotic or by trying to diversify the fruits and vegetables and complex carbs that you're eating, introduce more prebiotics so that we can create diversity in the gut. Yeah. Um, so most of our audience is strength-based. Um, most of the people that go to the gym to lift weights. Um, so we know that protein is important, but could you talk a little bit more about why it's important for people wanting to gain strength and uh, muscle mass? Sure. So for muscle building, your most important macro is going to be protein. Um, protein has always gotten a bad rap of making women big and bulky, but a lot of a lot of women don't need don't understand that it's an essential um, component of us being able to help with muscle growth and muscle repair and to help with the progressive overloading that they're doing in the gym and to get that true hypertrophy, making sure that we're eating an appropriate, an appropriate amount of protein each day, regardless of us being in a fat loss phase, a maintenance phase, or a building phase. Um, is critical because a lot of people just think I'm going to lift, I'm going to drop my carbs, and I'm going to be able to get the muscle that I'm after, um, especially when you have women that are trying to do things like um, build a body composition with like rounder shoulders, wider back, smaller waist, bigger glutes. Um, they don't understand that we need carbohydrates and protein to actually get there. Um, a lot of clients come to us and they say things like, I want to be able to build muscle, I want to look shredded. And one of the things that I want to ask before I see what they're doing for their lifting program is what are you eating? Um, and protein is a main component. And I think a lot of women don't realize how low their protein consumption is until they start tracking. Um, most women are going to need between 0.8 to 1.0 grams of protein um, per pound if they're wanting to maintain, especially build muscle, but it will vary on like their body size, um, their preferences of food, are they plant-based, are they a meat eater, um, but protein is a huge component and most women will see huge body composition changes just focusing on lifting calorie intake and protein alone. Yeah. Which is good. And some people forget that part. Like you said, ex oh, exercise, a bad diet. Some people try to under eat and still put on muscle mass, um, but it's got to be both for sure. I like that you pointed out glutes and this came up recently. You have a lot of women, especially because women on average tend to care more about building glutes than men. There are men who like it too, mm -hmm. but you definitely get women who get caught in this trap where they're trying to quote diet and get leaner but yet they're training to build muscle mass. And why would glutes be this magical exception that you can train it like crazy, be in a calorie deficit, and yet your glutes are somehow still supposed to grow? I don't know. Any added thoughts on that? I mean, that's exactly how I look at it. I, I think people think that it just, it's in like another criteria, another category of criteria. And they don't realize sometimes it's like one goal at a time. You're either going to get lean or you're going to build muscle. But when it comes to all of the body parts, they're all going to need hypertrophy. They're all going to need protein and consistency over time. And glutes are just like when someone wants to lose weight. To lose weight, you got to be consistent. It's not going to have it open happen over time. Glutes the same way. You got to be consistent with your training. You got to be consistent with what you're eating. And it's going to take um, time for it to happen being consistent as well. 
Yeah. Is there any other things that people sort of uh, neglect in terms of their nutrition when they want to increase strength and hypertrophy? Always carb intake, carbohydrate intake all of the time. Um, all of the time. <laughs> it's a big, big thing. I think women, especially when they see their carbohydrate intake hit a, a certain number, they want to pull back. I even see this with the coaches that go through our program when they're calculating macros, whether the clients are in a deficit phase or in a maintenance phase, when they see the number, especially go over 200 carbs, they start to freak out. Is that right? Like there's something about the number 200 when women see it with carbohydrates. It's like, I'm going into unknown territory. It's like once they hit 201 grams of carbohydrates, they think they're just going to gain seven pounds of weight overnight. And a lot of people don't understand that carbohydrates, like under intake of carbohydrates, not only is it keeping us from getting the muscle gains that we're wanting in the gym, it's now starting to be one of the leading causes for hypothyroidism from under, under eating carbs. Oh, interesting. On the rise. Yes. So Very prevalent. What about the prevalence <laughs> of low carb and keto diets, because keto is essentially a type of low carb diet. Does that create a potential problem there? Yes, it can over time. So low carbohydrate intake can lead to increased reverse T3, which is usually high when carbohydrate intake is low, um, when people are in a deficit for a long time, if someone went through like a famine, um, people with low immune systems, um, people that might have cancer, that is the sign of the body trying to go into a state of metabolizing carbohydrates a little bit slower because they're not getting as much. And you'll see your reverse T3 on lab work go up but it's now on the top five reasons of why are some of the causes of hypothyroidism. And I think a lot of women especially don't realize that we're starting to put ourselves into that state by under eating. Um, one of the things I'm really noticing and I really hate it a lot is when women go to the doctor, they say, um, hey doctor, whatever, since my last check-in, I'm up five pounds, what do you recommend? Some of the things that I hear thrown out there right away are 1200 calorie diets, try keto or eat hundred grams of carbohydrates, just like really generalized information that's given out there. So now I'm starting to see a lot of women going, so should I eat hundred grams of carbohydrates? I'm like, where's this number coming from? Yeah. It's just another reason for people to need to pay attention for, to their, what they're eating. I'll say this carefully because I want to make sure it's nuanced, but it's really important to know when, where doctors are qualified and where they're not. And people like to throw this around a little too generally to say, oh, you know, doctors don't know anything about nutrition. On average, the majority of them don't. Ones that do will demonstrate it. I like using Dr. Spencer Nadolsky. He's basically an obesity uh, physician. And Dr. Nick Nabwese on Instagram. He is the fittest doc. And they're medical doctors, but they're far more educated in nutrition. They're passionate about getting people healthy and active. And Spencer in particular is a, knows everything from diet and lifestyle all the way to bariatric surgery and the appropriate use of drugs, which can often get very controversial. There's a similar thing. It's a little off topic, but sometimes doctors will also say, or, or even sometimes professionals who don't understand strength training, a, a close friend of mine, 
she had twins recently and she was told by her physical therapist not to lift anything heavy. Okay. So while that sort of intuitively makes sense, it's so vague, it's useless. It tells me that this, I, I sent her to go talk to a couple of physical therapists who I trust, who I know, no strength training. And ultimately to get her strong, I, we need some parameters, all right? What does don't lift too heavy actually mean? It's gotta be information that's pretty useful. And one of my concerns with physicians sometimes is that they'll do the blanket thing that covers their ass versus the thing that's good for the person. Another place it shows up, but again, I'm speaking outside of my depth. So it, I just want people to be alert to this is oftentimes women during pregnancy, the doctor will turn around and say, hey, you know, don't lift. And I don't know the exact statistics on miscarriages. This is really outside my scope. I, you know, if you want to learn more about this sort of stuff, my friend Hannah Gray, Brianna Battles, who's going to be coming on the podcast soon, she'll be great. But there is a significant percentage of miscarriages in all pregnancies that uh, that people just don't talk about. So let's say the doctor turns around and says, hey, it's okay to lift weights and the woman has a miscarriage because statistically one happens. Then, you know, I think sometimes the doctors are worried that they can be blamed because they said strength training was okay. But if they say don't strength train, which can have negative impacts on the actual progression of the pregnancy anyway, how well it goes. And then a miscarriage happens anyway, well, the doctor's ass is covered. And so just look for places where doctors and other professionals may be saying things that just kind of cover their ass instead of actually doing what's in your best interest. And I think the answer is get a second opinion from a qualified professional who has expertise in that area. And that's that's your advice in that situation. Forgive me for going sideways there, but I thought uh, important nuance. No, good point. Definitely. Yeah, but I mean, there's something to be said about um, someone that's a general physician sending you to... Um, someone that works specifically with that population, um, which brings me to another question. Um, when would someone start working with a nutritionist and why would they work with a nutritionist over, you know, listening to whatever their, their doctor says? Ooh, good segue. <laughs> kind of the same scenario. Someone that is experienced in this area and someone that does this for like their sole practice or sole job, someone that has the certifications, the experience, and someone who's going to be an advocate for your health through the route of nutrition and fitness. Yeah, which is good. Um, so for back to the, the protein, I was curious to know if you had opinions on, um, how to work that kind of stuff into specific diets like um, plant-based or um, dairy-free and stuff like that. Yeah. So for dairy-free, I'm dairy-free as well. Don't want to be, but you got to do what you got to <laughs> do. Um, so for me with dairy, I've cut down things like cottage cheese, Greek yogurt and cheese. And I've replaced those with just larger portions of meat sources. I do like plant-based um, dairy and cheeses that are typically going to be mostly just carbohydrates and fat. They may have like a little smidge of protein in them. They may have like one to three grams, but basically I've just increased my protein in other places. So with my, um, fish, with my turkey, with my chicken, with my beef, also with my protein shakes, I opt for ones that are plant-based that are typically pea protein, um, not using ones that are whey anymore just because they're more gentle on my stomach. I just wrote a post, I think it was about a week ago about how to get 130 grams of protein plus in your day. 
And for most people, I think they're so fixated on where are all these, you know, multiple sources of protein coming from? Do I need to do this thing that this influencer said to put in my shake? Do I need to eat this type of food, this brand? But a lot of people really need to focus on the portions that they're weighing out per meal to be able to hit their protein for the day. Um, so for like your typical meat eaters like me, whether you're eating lactose or not, that's probably going to mean that most of your meals, depending on if you're eating three and a snack or four or five times a day, you may, may potentially need to have four to six ounces of a protein source in every single meal. For people that are plant-based, they may have to lean towards eating things like tofu, um, some of the meat replacement things that are out there that mimic chicken and beef. Um, also eating things like seitan, um, which includes vital wheat gluten. So your gluten-free people will have to kind of stray away from eating those things, but also increasing some of the vegetables um, like edamame, things that may have soy, if you can have them to be able to hit your protein goal for the day. Yeah. Um, just curious about your opinions on the gluten-free diet, like where it came from. Obviously, it's celiacs. That totally makes sense. Um, but where it came from, why people decided that that was a thing and if it actually holds up, like if it affects people the way that they thought that it did. I honestly don't know the true background outside of why a lot of, um, well, some physicians, nutritionists, and dietitians prescribe it outside of those that actually have celiac disease or Hajimoto's. But I'm now seeing it kind of like the craze or the thing to have everything gluten free. Um, I think a lot of women that don't have an understanding of why that diet was actually created for those that specifically need it, think it's tied to like bloating, weight gain, having a larger, fuller stomach, um, making their waistline not look as sleek and slim and, you know, whatever. But a lot of women are kind of gravitating to that as a diet to implement in hopes of them losing weight. Yeah. A lot of... I think there's two things worth stuffing in here. I think it got a lot of attention. I think it was about a decade ago when the book Wheat Belly came out. It kind of blew up the attention on this sort of thing. Is it oversimplified demonization of wheat gluten? And there's been a lot of back and forth as to whether or not non uh, non celiac uh, you know gluten sensitivity is a real thing. There's definitely stuff there. Um, but I also am of the belief. Correct me if I'm wrong that. Probably a lot of what gets blamed on gluten is actually more of FODMAP intolerance. Do you want to explain what FODMAPs are? And then we're going to let everybody know where to find you and your stuff on social media. Sure. So FODMAP intolerance is basically a way of going through those food groups to kind of see what sensitivities are to food, which ones people have intolerances to, and kind of going through an elimination diet um, step by step to make sure the top, the intolerance is there or not. I think there's a lot of, I gotta be careful what I say. <laughs> I think there are some nutritionists and dietitians that implement that into their coaching plan in the beginning and walk a lot of people through it. And I've noticed that a lot of people, when they finish those diets, they may have a interpretation or a perception that eliminating some of those things has led to weight loss. And so I've seen that kind of crossover into people keeping those things out of their diet, but it's almost kind of with a 
um, what do I want to call it? Like they're afraid to add them back in, kind of like a fear of carbs, a fear of some of these different food groups. And it's okay for them to add them back in if those food groups are not causing any of the gastrointestinal distress that we're trying to Correct. find what's the actual cause of. And because with FODMAP, so there's, it's an acronym, there's, I, I can't remember what they all are, but there's a lot of different things. So it's not necessarily very easy to figure out. So it's much easier for people to market and say, well, gluten is the problem. There's demonic malevolent gluten or, and I'm not even getting into seed oils, but there's a whole big thing now where seed oils are the, the current thing that are being demonized. And there's lots of research, you know, on that. I'm not interested in fighting that battle with people. And then of course you get the people who uh, like to fight about artificial sweeteners too, but usually it's not just one thing. It's, you know, people are marketing something to you that's oversimplified and it's why it's valuable to actually go and learn from someone like yourself, who's got the academic background and the experience. So tell people about your programs and where they can find more of you on your media. Sure. So you guys can find me on Instagram pretty much daily at Eve underscore Fitchick. Our website is G Transformation Academy and our current programs include one-on-one -on -one coaching, macro makeover for everyday people that just want to focus on their fitness and nutrition goals to learn how to set their own macros, adjust their macros, take themselves through deficits, maintenance, diet phases, um, reverse diets. And then we have a mentorship program for courses for coaches called Macro Mentorship, and it's a macro nutrition coaching certification program. Awesome. Well, I hope anybody enjoying this episode is going to see that you're a wealth of knowledge. So to go find, go follow more of your stuff. And then again, we can also remind people, well, tell you what, let's give them something. Why should they come and see you talk at the Real Coaches Summit, Vegas, March 6th and 7th, besides the fact that it's Vegas? Oh, besides <laughs> it's Vegas and I was married there? No. <laughs> Because, I mean, it is probably for the year of 2023, the one event that's happening this year that for the price of what you're getting for two days and to be able to learn from 16 amazing speakers in less than 48 hours, plus you're getting your meals in the morning, lunch, you get to do, I think, what, what is he calling it, our two-hour happy hour together um, you're getting a chance to be in the room up close and personal with a lot of professionals that have been able to pave the way for people who are coaches in this space and for people that have gotten some really amazing results um, from real coaches that don't um, show up with a lot of bullshit. <laughs> um, I'm excited. Bailey and I will actually be at Raise the Bar the weekend prior. Um, mm -hmm. That was going to be a really cool event. And then I have this and then I have something I'm just going to go hang out at in Seattle. So three weekends in a row, I'm on the road. So uh, I love it. Yeah, it's great. Um, Eve, thank you so much. You've been wonderful. Um, obviously, the well, like your experience radiates through everything you've said. So thank you. We I don't know if we really had a whole lot of really in-depth nutrition stuff on this podcast yet to date, which is why you're such a great guest. Uh, everybody, please go check out what Eve is doing. Um, thank you for tuning in. We appreciate it. If you happen to be someone who's found our podcast through Eve's Media. Well, you can look through our list of guests. We have a lot of solo episodes. We have a lot of great guests as well. And you may find other people that you really like. So I hope that you might stick around. And uh, thank you again. We really appreciate having you.